Anyway, um, we're reading from John 17, 23, 20 through 23, and I'm glad I brought my paper because I can't quite read that either. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Okay, so t- today is Palm Sunday. And uh, this is the day where we begin to celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem as we move towards what's called Holy Week in the church calendar. And we move towards Easter where Jesus' death and his resurrection on Easter Day. And it's a, the, the, the high point of the church calendar and what we're going through. And, and if you do follow the church calendar, this Thursday is what's called Monday Thursday. And Monday, Thursday, that gets the name Monday, comes the word mandate, and that comes from John chapter 13, they they call after that, where Jesus gives this mandate to love one another the way that Christ has loved us. And in fact, this entire series that we've been doing for the last seven weeks, through John 14 through 17, all of it happens on that Thursday, this coming Thursday, on Monday, Thursday. Everything from John 13 to 17 is all happening on that Thursday. And today, we're getting into the last part of that as Jesus is the second half of Jesus' final prayer for his disciples as he begins to get going and and moving to the cross. And so this last prayer that Jesus gives at the end of chapter 17, it's all of 17, but the last bit we're covering today, it's specifically he moves to begin talking about us. And in that, he's specifically asking and he's praying to the Father for unity. And so I, I just want to talk a little bit about that as we, before we jump into the text. And one of my favorite quotes about unity is from A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God. And this is what he says. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking, uh, sorry, each one looking to Christ are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their way, eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. So I mean, you think of it like, kind of like a pitch pipe so, or, or like a tuning fork. If you have one note, right, that's the note that everything would be tuned to. Could you imagine an orchestra that doesn't have a tuning fork or doesn't have a pitch pipe of some kind? And as the orchestra gets ready to play, each person just tries to figure it out on their own, and then they get started. It's going to sound horrific. It's going to sound like an absolute mess. Everything tuned to their own idea of what that would sound like. And imagine if we as Christians just tried to do our best. Everyone just had their own idea. They all just kind of compared themselves to others, and everyone just tried to stay, kind of do their own thing the way they thought was best. It would be an absolute mess. In fact, it would probably look a lot like what the global church looks like today. An absolute mess. The most divided religion in the world. Christianity is the most fragmented, divided religion on earth. Nothing else even comes close to Christianity. And the degrees of division and backbiting, or backbiting and fighting and all the things going on across the church globally. And yet the insane thing is that the unity of the body is what Christ prays for more than anything else as he's getting ready to go. This is central to Jesus' heart as he's getting ready to go is the unity of the body of Christ. More than anything else as he goes to cross, as he goes to the cross. And, and as a body, I feel, as a global church body, we've really missed God's heart. We failed miserably on this area as the body of Christ. 
somehow Christians across the world, we, we've so individualized our faith, we've made it about us and my personal faith and, and my personal salvation and my personal experience that I am saved and therefore I'm good, that we've totally missed out on the vast majority of what Jesus actually has to say. We can put, you know, ridiculous bumper stickers on our car that say things like, you know, I, I'm, I'm not perfect, but just forgiven. And now, while that, we may have a good intention with that, but what that actually says to the world around us is I don't actually have any expectation that my life would be any different than anyone else's as a result of the work of the cross. I'm just forgiven. I got to get out of, get out of hell free card. I'm doing fine. I don't, and, and you don't have to worry about me looking any different. But that's not at all what Jesus said. Jesus explicitly states over and over and over again that we as Christians must be living lives that radically stand apart from the world. We should be living lives that are radically different from the world around us. And chief among those, as he's going to emphasize here again, is going to be the way in which we love one another sacrificially, our unity of the body of Christ. Now, unity among Christians, according to Jesus, is not an option. Right? It isn't something that we as Christians can choose to opt into or out of or just choose sometimes to be able to engage in. It's not like buying a car and choosing to, to upgrade or opt into the performance package or, or getting the hybrid model. Choosing to opt out of unity, according to Jesus, would be more like trying to buy a car and asking it for it without an engine, right? Saying that this, it won't actually go anywhere. It's the central thing that causes it to go. Unity is central to the life of a Christian, according to Christ. And so I want to show a couple of scriptures here before we jump into the, the primary text for today. And we're going to start in Proverbs chapter 6. An amazing passage where the author says this. He says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and lastly, the seventh one, a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Now, by adding the seventh thing here, the author is using a, a well-known literary device and he uses it other places as well. He's emphasizing that seventh thing. He's putting a special emphasis on it. And here, on that seventh thing, he says, the others he God hates, this one is an abomination. In fact, that's the same language that God uses to describe child sacrifice. I like Eugene Peterson, his translation of the message, he says this one, that there's one more that God loathes with a passion. And what is this seventh thing? What is this final thing that, that he puts up with this terrible idea that's compared to lying, to devising wicked schemes, running towards evil, and even murdering the innocent? What is it that the author lifts up as the most abominable act that could be done in this list? Sowing division. Creating conflict. That's listed as one of the things that God hates most of all. I mean, I could give a hundred verses on unity in Scripture, but one more I want to point at, and that's a very popular passage. It's just before uh, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. We'll start in verse 19. He says, The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, notice this passage is crazy. In the midst of him describing immorality, sexual immorality, debauchery, orgies, idolatry, witchcraft, and drunkenness, sandwiched right in the midst of all of that, what is sandwiched right in the midst of all of that? Hatred, discord, jealousy, dissension, factions, selfish ambition, choosing to focus on my own desires and what I want over, the, over that, that of others. Now, let's be honest. How many of us would put those things in the same category? How many of us would, would, would put jealousy and selfish ambition in the same category as witchcraft, debauchery, and orgies and idolatry? 
probably most of us would not put those in the same sentence or in the same category, which means we don't have the mind of God. We don't see things through God's eyes. We don't have his perspective. We don't have his heart if we don't put those in the same way because that's how God views it. It's his thoughts, not ours. Do we recognize that from God's perspective, disunity is on par with witchcraft, idolatry, debauchery, and in Proverbs, even on par with, with murdering the innocents? And in fact, here in this passage, he says, those who practice this way, those who continue in this way of creating disunity and these other things, he says, they have no part in the kingdom of God. They will not inherit it. What more does Jesus or Paul need to say for us to be able to recognize the seriousness of this to the kingdom of God? God is incredibly serious about his body being a testimony to the world. As we're going to see again today in this passage in John 17, Jesus makes it the very center of his prayer. Now, if we want to follow Christ, we must take Jesus at his word, right? That's what it means to be a follower. We actually do the stuff he said to do. We are his apprentices. We are his followers, his disciples. And that means we must heed his call. It means, as we talked about last week, that we are called to be set apart for his mission of reaching the lost. And that means we must actually live in love like Jesus. So let's jump into the text today. As we're starting, right where we picked up last, or finished off last week in verse 20 of chapter 17, Jesus says this. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, the last few chapters that we've been talking about, going back to the beginning of the series, if you haven't been with us, has been Jesus' final few hours with his disciples, starting with the Last Supper where he washes their feet and tells them that he's about to be killed uh, and and, and that they are actually going to be put in trial as well as a result of it. He tells them not to be afraid because he's sending his Holy Spirit and his spirit will make all of Jesus available to them. And in fact, it is better for them that he leaves so that his spirit can come because then all of him is available to to his disciples that he will never be very far away from them. In fact, he will be with them for all of eternity. And then as we get into chapter 17, it's this extended prayer. The entirety of the chapter is one long prayer that Jesus prays, his final prayer before going to the garden. And last week we saw the focus of that was Jesus praying that the disciples would be protected from disunity, protected from the work of Satan, and that they would be in the world and not of the world. And so here, as we jump into this section, Jesus begins this, and he specifically says he's praying for those who will believe. He said, not just praying for these disciples, but those who will believe in the future. So who is that? That's us. This is one of the most incredible parts of the Bible because this is the only place where Jesus specifically is praying for us today, right? One of the things about Bible study that people often get wrong is they always, whatever whatever verse you read, traditional Bible studies, like you read a verse, you say, what does that mean to me? And it's actually kind of a weird way to do it because it wasn't written to you. And you have to then spend some time thinking, what did it mean to the people it was written to before we ask what it meant to me? But right here in John 17, 20 to 26, You can go straight to application saying, what does this mean to me? Because Jesus is speaking directly to us today. And everyone who has come to Christ in the last 2,000 years and will ever come to Christ is being spoken of right here in this passage. So now notice in this passage, though, that Jesus makes an assumption that his disciples are going to obey the command that we looked at last week. They're going to be obeying the command to remain in the world and that others are going to believe because of their testimony. That's the assumption here. He says that they will believe because of the disciples have obeyed Jesus already. Now, N.T. Wright has a great quote on this one. He says that the church is never more than a single generation from extinction. All it takes is for a single generation to not hand the word forward, to not obey what Jesus has called. Now, we've seen this in the Old Testament over and over again, that one generation can stop following God and the next generation doesn't know anything about him. One of the scariest places anywhere in Scripture is found 
in the beginning of Judges, as it follows up Joshua, where Joshua ends on this huge high point, and then we enter into the book of Judges, where Joshua has died, and this is what it says in Judges chapter 2, verse 10. I think this is one of the scariest places anywhere in Scripture. It says, after that generation died, now he's referring to Joshua dying, who followed Moses and brought, took over the promised land, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt, and they went after other gods. Within one generation, literally their kids, went from following the Lord and taking the promised land to completely forgetting him and following Baal and actually worshiping demonic idols and going after it because they completely succumbed to the culture of the time that they have the land they were in. They did not pass it down to the next generation or pass the word on to others. And so Jesus here is assuming the expectation is the disciples will obey and pass the word forward. Now, the truth is, we are losing the battle on this one as Christians. You know, Barna just did a study back in 2019 that came out that showed that 64% of 18 to 29-year-olds, by after they, sorry, after they leave, that grew up in the church, 64% of 18 to 29-year-olds in that range have walked away from the church and walked away from their faith. 64% of people who grew up in the church as of 2019 were walking away at the age of 20, 18 to 29. That's just insane, and that's from 2019. 64%, almost two-thirds of people who grew up in the church end up walking away is what they found just a couple years ago. Those are horrifically scary numbers of things that we are failing in passing along the word of truth to our kids, let alone those who didn't grow up in the church. And so then we get to verse 21. And in verse 21, it says this, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, this, look at what Jesus says about unity here, because this is just amazing what he says here. He's going to repeat himself over and over and over again. Now, remember, when he's talking about they, that's us. The they is us in this passage. So he says in verse 21 again, I just want to highlight this. He says that they, that's us, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. That's how one we should be is the same way that they are one. Verse 22 puts it this, puts it this way, that they may be one even as we are one. Now, that's speaking of us, that we would be one even as the Father and the Spirit and the Son are one. Verse 23, the next verse, I in them, he's speaking to the Father, says, I in them, that's us, and you in me, Father, that they, that's us, may become perfectly one. So here, exact same statement, just adding perfectly one on top of it, in case he wasn't clear enough. And this is all a repetition from verse 11 that we saw last week, where he prays that God would protect them and that they may be one even as we are one. So Jesus repeats this four times in just a few verses. What can we assume about what Jesus is trying to say? This must be really important. In his final prayer for us, the only place he prays for us today in the entirety of Scripture, all future believers are being, pray being prayed for, and this is the most important thing upon Jesus' mind. This is what he's praying over and over and over, and it dominates the final few verses of the passage. This means that he actually expects this. This is Jesus' longing. It seems more than anything else for us to hear is that we are walking in unity. It's the same message over and over and over again, that we sacrificially love one another. Jesus isn't praying for their comfort. He's not praying for their finances or for their health, or, but he's praying that they actively walk in unity with one another, sacrificially loving each other. 
And so what should that unity look like? Well, he describes it very clearly there of what, he spoke, what it's supposed to be. 21, he says there, may they be one, we see right there. May they all be one, just as you, Father, is, are in me and I am in you. He expects them to be as united as the Trinity is. And not just united in theory, but actually in the way they selflessly serve and love one another. Verse 22, the same thing there you see. That he says, may they be one even as we are one. Again, he emphasized that three times in this passage, he emphasizes that the example, the model, the foundation that he's using of what unity looks like is not some worldly example. It's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The way in which we selflessly love one another, pursue one another, care for one another, that is what the body of Christ is supposed to do. Not just tolerating one another, not just not having massive arguments or disagreements, but selflessly having an otherly orientation towards one another. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives an incredible example of what this looks like. And uh, it goes back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. And I love this story where Jesus says, So if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar, go and be reconciled to that person, then come offer your sacrifice to God. Now, do you realize how insane this request of Jesus is? He's speaking to people who are mostly from Galilee. That's a three-day walk away from the temple in Jerusalem. And so what he's telling them is, if you, are, if you walk three days down to Jerusalem like you have to do to go to the temple, you buy your sheep or your bird or whatever it is you're sacrificing, depending on your, your income level, and you come in, and then you wait all day or the whole morning to get into the temple, and finally you come to the altar in the very presence of God, and in the midst of the presence of God, all of a sudden you are convicted of the fact that you have some type of sin against your brother or sister or something's going on in your heart where there is a lack of reconciliation, anger, or brokenness in some way. He says, leave the animal there, for like a week, walk three days back to, to, to Galilee, go deal with the issue you got to deal with, and then come back again. That's how important Jesus says this is. That's more than a minor inconvenience. Jesus is saying this must be of utmost importance. Do not let there be any levels of disunity between you. Do not let conflict fester, he's saying. And Jesus knows that this takes incredible sacrifice. In fact, that's why he often compares it to dying on a cross. He calls us to sacrificially love one another. So the question is then, why is Jesus so obsessed with unity? He keeps speaking about it again and again and again, sacrificially loving one another again and again and again. You know, I don't know if anyone at this point, after these eight weeks, is getting tired of me kind of repeating myself again and again and again, right? I, I, and I, I hope you aren't, but if you are, don't get mad at me, get mad at Jesus, right? I'm trying to stay honest to the text. I'm trying to go through the text, and he just keeps repeating himself again and again and again. And I feel I'd be dishonest with the text if I just keep trying to find my own messages in the midst of it. This is Jesus that keeps repeating himself. So why is he so obsessed with this? Well, he answers it really directly here. Back in verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, being for the disciples, but for all those who will believe in me. How? Through their word. So the assumption is there, the way that people came to believe was through the previous disciples. There was something about there, and word isn't just the message, it's their lifestyle that Jesus has been describing. And then he says multiple times, like here in verse 21, again, he says, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us. And here, here's the kicker, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Right? All of this is happening, this unity, so that the world may believe that you sent me. That's why we must fight for unity. And then he says again in verse 23, may they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Could he be any clearer? 
So why is Jesus so obsessed with unity? Because Jesus knows that it's through unity that the world will come to see him. That it's through the way that we love one another is going to be the primary way in which people come to recognize that he is their savior. The world comes to know him. The lost are found through his disciples walking in unity is what Jesus says. Our unity is our largest testimony to the world that Jesus really is from the Father. Jesus says the number one way that we can know, or sorry, that people, the world can know the love of Christ is how well we as his body love one another. That is the primary way. Amen. Now he said it explicitly at the Last Supper. We looked at this a few weeks ago, John chapter 13, verse 34. Let's look at this again. He says, I'm giving you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And here it is. By this, all people, all people will know that you are my disciples. What will set you apart? If you have love for one another. For Jesus, how well we as Christians love one another and walk in unity with one another is a matter of life and death. That's the core non-negotiable. Not just tolerating one another, but loving one another so well that the world looks at us and they go, that's amazing. Surely God must be real. That is what Jesus is saying here. They'll say, truly God is in this place and he must be real by looking at the way in which Christians love one another. Jesus understands that this is the hill to die on for him. Literally, he is dying for this. And that the church globally, it seems, has given up on this one. And it's no surprise that so much of the world today says the church has nothing I want. Because when they look at the church, they don't see Jesus. Thomas Manton was the great Puritan preacher of the 1600s, and he said this. He said, divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. Now, he said this was said not just last week, but 400 years ago, right? This was 400 years ago. Divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. We have to take Jesus' word seriously. We have to raise, this isn't just a side issue of having disagreements in the body. This is a central issue to Jesus. It is the most central issue for the body of Christ today, according to Jesus. Now, these are his words. I just want to say, repeat this again from John 13, because this is the central part for this whole message. And this is actually, with the, again, Monday, Thursday, that's coming up this Thursday. The mandate is this passage right here again. I'm giving you a new commandment that you have love for one another just as I have loved you. That's the standard, the sacrificial love of Christ, that you also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the mandate right there, that we love one another the way Christ loved us. You know, churches today in America specifically have become so attractional. And we're spending just endless amounts of money on, on, on budgets, on, on lights and sound and marketing and, and the slickest advertising and all the rest of it. And, and I should be for those who don't know, I, I've lived most of my life overseas, my adult life. And uh, after 25 years of being overseas, just moved back to America last year or the year before that. And uh, to come to be a pastor, I've been trying to make up for 25 years overseas. I, I'm a foreigner, and so I've just been reading as much as I can possibly read on, on the church in America. I mean, oftentimes two or three books a week, sometimes just reading as much as I can to try and figure out to make sense of this weird American church world that we're now a part of, or that Sarah and I have moved into. And, and so I'm reading endless books on church leadership and American culture and church growth and church health and, and all this other stuff. I've listening to endless podcasts and I've done multiple seminars and, and courses on church health and church growth, just trying to make sense of it. And I've learned a ton in that process, but so much of it genuinely grieves me of what I'm reading. And, and that's because the, so many of the strategies that I'm reading are identical to what like an NFL team or like a concert venue would use to draw people in. 
I mean, over and over again, it's been have the best of everything. Spend the most money on things that attract people into the building. Stay up to date on the newest trends, the slickest marketing to get people to come into the door. You're supposed to only use the most popular worship songs and have the youngest, best-looking people that are all dressed hip. You're supposed to have the most professional musicians. You're supposed to have sermons that are like TED Talks, keep them you know, in the range of a TED Talk time and just as engaging. The topic should be taken from like the most searched Google terms. right? All these things are advice that's given. And it's not that anything's wrong with that. Nothing's wrong with marketing and nothing's wrong with these things. I and mean, we as a church sometimes do that as well. But it, the problem is of why do we have to do that? And it's because the world isn't actually interested in the church. And they're not interested in Jesus. And why not? Because they can't see Jesus in the church. They're not interested in what we have because they can't see Jesus. Because we're not displaying Jesus to the world. Because we're not actually obeying what Jesus said to do. Because the church across America, across the world, but so much of it is not truly representing Christ to the world in the way we love one another. I once asked a really successful pastor, why do we do all this stuff? And his answer was, because it works, (laughs) right? And I can't blame him. That place was seeing lots of people come through the door. And he said to me, people are consumers. It's just the way it is. Now, I can't question his results, but I don't believe this is what Jesus had in mind. We become a consumer-driven, attractional-based understanding. And and again, there's nothing wrong with marketing. There's nothing wrong with great worship experiences or or really good sermons or or charismatic, gifted speakers in some way. I I hope we can grow in those things. It's wonderful to do that. And we spend a ton of energy trying to, to get better in those areas. But as a church across the country, I feel we woefully failed in this area. It it should not be our great worship or incredible speaking or slick marketing campaigns that draw people. But according to Jesus, what we're seeing here in this passage, according to him, his spirit draws people as we love one another and live in love like him. That is the way it's supposed to work. Amen? Amen. That as the lost world sees Jesus, it shouldn't happen in a building. It shouldn't happen through a sermon as the first point of contact. It should be as they experience the love of Christ being poured through the people that are his followers. And they should recognize Jesus way before they get into this building. It should be as each of us, they should recognize Jesus as each of us become more and more like Jesus and the Spirit moves through our lives into them confirming who Christ is. Church should not be the first place where people encounter Jesus. You know, I honestly hope that Northview never becomes a place that is known for how great our worship is and our speaking. I want us to grow in these areas, and I hope they're pretty good, and I hope I can be an adequate communicator of the word, and luckily we have an awesome worship leader, but I hope that's never what we're known for. What we should be known for is actually living and loving like Jesus. That should be the thing that we are known for. That people experience the love of Christ as they come into contact with us because they see the way that we sacrificially love one another. That must be what we are known for. In fact, that's what drew Sarah and I here to Northview years ago and, and what's kept us here and, and made us or, we were part of it and what's made us actually come to pastor here was the way in which we saw that demonstrated. You know, so many of the books that I read on reaching the lost, one of the things that was often said was that the average person's job is just to get people to bring them to church and that the pastor's job is to give a compelling message. I mean, so many recommend that, just get people. The whole thing is, it's all about volume, it says. You know, you gotta get people in the building. And when I read that stuff, it just makes my heart grieve. I, I just want to scream, no, that's not what it's about. The, the way people experience Christ should not primarily be through a sermon. It shouldn't be through a preacher. And it shouldn't be by coming into a church building. But it should be as we go into the world and we love the way Christ has loved us. And we walk in unity with one another. That should be how people experience Jesus. 
I mean, it's great to invite people to church. That is a wonderful thing. It's not that we shouldn't do that. In fact, next week is Easter. Please invite friends. It's often the one day of the year where people are willing to come to church or or check it out. If you have uh, neighbors that aren't Christians, it's often the big holiday where people are willing to see what it is. and, And we trust that God moves that. I hope God moves through the preaching of his word and wonderful times of worship and fellowship. But that should not be the expectation that the way that I see people come to Christ is bring them to church. It should be through my life lived out in the way that Christ has called me to live, of me actively choosing to love like Jesus. And not just love non-believers, he's specifically referring to the way we love other Christians. That they see the way we love one another, and that should be drawing them to him. In verse 23, he says it this way, May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them just as much as you love me. So the way we, in which we love one another and walk in unity with one another causes the world out there to see how much God loves them. That's how he says the world will experience his love. As we love one another and walk in unity, he says his love will be demonstrated to the world out there. So when someone walks through the doors of our church or into our cubicle at work or, or joins our Zoom call that we're on for, for work of some kind or sit for a meal with us or sit in our class, They should be drawn to Jesus through the way in which we love one another. Jesus says that's how they experience his love, is through the way in which we love one another. Is that foundational to our understanding? It can't just be a show for guests or a display we put on. We cannot be, therefore, we cannot be self-centered as Christians. The stakes are too high, Jesus is describing. Everything that we do is a reflection to the world of Jesus. We don't have the option of living in anger towards others. We don't have the option of bad-mouthing others or ignoring those who are hurting or, or speaking our mind on Facebook without considering how are we glorifying Jesus in the way that we're speaking. You know, so frequently it seems that we, th- we think that our actions only affect ourselves and that we're not part of this larger, bo- larger body. Herman Edwards, he was the, the coach of the Kansas City Chiefs for a while, and now he's at Arizona State, and he had this quote that I love. He says, The players that play on this football team will play for the name on the side of the helmet and not the name on the back of the jersey. Right? The side of the helmet has the name of the team, not the back of the jersey, their last name. And as Christians, so frequently we act as though we're playing an individual sport, maybe like tennis or, or, or golf or something else. We think that it's just us against the world. And that's absolutely not the case. We are part of a body and everything we do impacts the body and is a reflection of Jesus to the world. I can say, you know, on my own and think, maybe I can be snarky to that waiter who messed up my order, or I can get angry at that person who cut me off in traffic, or I can write off a family member who's done things that, that, that acts in certain ways that I don't like or says things rude or, or has different politics. But as Christians, we don't get that option as Christians. That is not an option for us as Christians. I was chatting to someone a while ago who almost lost their job because they felt that they could speak their mind to a client and, and, and without considering who they were representing. And they got called in by their owner and the owner told them, I almost just lost a $10,000 job because of you. Because you spoke off your mouth and went off the, uh, you just went off the, uh, and, and, and spoke your mind to this person. And they said, you need to realize that, they literally told us, you need to realize that when you are out there, you represent me and my company. And I almost lost $10,000 because of the way you misrepresented my company. And they almost lost their job. Because the reality is we are not our own. And that's often the way we act like that. We don't have the freedom as Christians to act like we're playing an individual sport. Everything we do is a reflection of Jesus to the world. Everything that we do. And it doesn't mean we need to be perfect, but we sure must be quick to repent when we miss the mark. So how well do we truly love one another? What Jesus is calling us here to is Trinitarian unity. 
The unity he asks of us is the same selfless, otherly centered lives that the Trinity has among themselves, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And it's not just choosing to believe the same stuff. That's not enough. It's not about avoiding major disagreements. Jesus is always weaving together the idea of unity and sacrificially loving one another. And that's not the same as just having the same theology. You can have the same exact beliefs and not reflect Jesus in any way. You know, when I was studying for this week and reading commentaries and all sorts of other stuff, so many of the things as they're in this passage of the commentaries and the academics, they focus on the fact that we need to have the same beliefs and same theology and believe the same things. And that's great. I mean, I love theology. I love studying it. Obviously, truth matters. Jesus speaks of the word of truth multiple times in this passage. But right here, to what he's speaking to us today, he's not talking about having the same theology. That is not his point. Just being able to agree on theology does not create the unity Jesus speaks of. Francis Chan, in his great book I recommend called Until Unity, he says this, Too many people live as though affirming a biblical truth is equivalent to having it in reality. Seminary can teach you how to memorize a menu, but that doesn't ensure you'll ever taste the food. So just having an idea of something, agreeing, means absolutely nothing. Jesus is talking about actually sacrificially loving one another, to live in love like he loved. One of the most frequently uh, quoted lines in regards to unity, and, 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 and this specifically in John 17, is often misattributed to Augustine. And it's this famous saying. It says, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Great statement. Of course, what it means here is that, you know, when, when you hear it quoted, it's, it's often about John 17 and unity and other things. That in things that are essential, like Jesus died on the cross, that he's the son of God, that he rose from the dead, that, uh, that he paid the penalty for our sins. And all those things, those are essential, and we must have those essential things and have unity in those things. But it says in the non-essential, so maybe how we baptize, uh, uh, the, meth- uh, the styles of worship or views of the end times. In that area, there's, there's liberty. You can have a lot of differences there in the non-essential. And it says in all things charity. And, and that sounds great. And we can listen to a quote like that and go, mm, that's, that's great. Amen. We can have unity in that area. But the truth is that, that quote is, is kind of useless in actually creating unity. Because it doesn't really matter if you have the same idea or if you're willing to, offer to, 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 to you know, be, agree in your disagreements. That doesn't actually create unity. Just having the same ideas doesn't do it. In fact, the guy who actually wrote this wasn't from 300s in Augustine. It's a dude named Marco Antonio de Dominus in 1617. And he's actually one of the most polarizing religious figures in history. He was part of the Roman church, and he was known as a heretic, kicked out because he kept attacking them and doing all this other stuff. So he ran to England, to the Anglican church. And while he was there, did the same thing. He was attacking them with scathing rebukes. Finally, they called him a heretic and kicked him out of the country. And in fact, so not only was he very polarizing, but he wrote this one year before the 30-year war started. I don't know history and buffs, but history buffs in here, but the Thirty Years' War is one of the most horrific wars in history. Over five million people died in this war, half of the population of Germany, over what was considered a religious war at the time. And that's when this is written. So clearly, for the guy that wrote it and for the people listening to it, it didn't provide much value in creating unity. You know, just believing similar stuff and trying to get along is not what Jesus was talking about. You know, Talking about unity is enough. When I, I used to lead a lot of uh, outreach teams, specifically short-term ones in, in on the mission field. And, and one of the worst team I ever led was the first one I led. But it's also the one I spent the most time preparing for. We had a month together in preparation for a two-month outreach. This team, there was me and five others on it, not a big team. And every day we spent one hour praying for unity. And we spent time talking about unity, sharing our stories. We spent time learning about one another. We went through John 17, this exact passage, I don't know how many times. And we were ready for it. We were together in unity. We were going to go serve and love others out of unity. Long story short, within one week on the ground, the team totally fell apart. We went to serve others, and yet we couldn't serve each other. 
We went to go teach them about Jesus, but we could not actually follow Jesus ourselves. The worst team I've ever been a part of. Within a few weeks of being on the ground, the team mutinied against me. They, they all wanted to leave. It was horrific. And yet I've never been part of a team that talked about or prayed for unity more than that team. And it was actually the worst one I've ever been on in my life. You know, this funny side story, I was actually preaching down the, another church uh, a few weeks back, and the worship leader of the church was one of those five people on that team. Small world. Couldn't believe it. And they actually came up to me and repented afterwards, like, I'm so sorry for what we did to you in that outreach. And I repent back, and oh, it's my fault. I was a horrible leader. Um, but Jesus is referring to a sacrificial model in which he loved them. He says that is the model for unity, sacrificial love. That Jesus is the note that we tune ourselves to. We don't tune ourselves to our best efforts. He is the note that we tune ourselves to. He is the example. We abide in him, and we must increasingly live in love like him. And unity is also not about uniformity. It's not about always being the same and trying to be the same. I love how Dr. Kent Hughes puts this in his commentary on John 17. He says this. It's going to be two slides, a little bit longer, but this is so beautiful. He says this. Christ's prayer for unity does not mean we should all be the same. Though many Christians mistakenly assume that, too many think other believers should be just like them, carry the same Bible, read the same books, promote the same styles, educate their children in the same way, have the same likes and dislikes. He says that would be uniformity, not unity. We are not called to be Christian clones. In fact, he says, the insistence that others be just like us is one of the most disunifying forces in the church of Jesus Christ today. This creates a judgmental inflexibility that hurls people away from the church with deadly force. One of the gospel's glories is that it emphasizes our individuality even while bringing us into unity. That unity without uniformity is implicit in Paul's teaching on spiritual gifts. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says this, Now there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. I love that. That it's not about uniformity, it's about unity. It's about sacrificially loving one another in the midst of differences, in the midst of diversity. Because we should have incredible diversity within the body. Jesus handpicked as his his disciples a zealot and and a tax collector. The, the absolute hated enemies of one another, and he puts them together and forces them into a tiny little team together to work together for years because he knows it's hard, he knows it's painful, but he knows by putting those two together, it would force the world to see that he is real. That's according to Jesus. He knew it would be hard, he knew it would be painful, but the greater the diversity, the greater God is glorified when unity is on display. The early church had constant struggles with disunity, and Paul is always pulling it back together. It's a constant story of the New Testament. And the whole of church history is filled with stories of disunity. One of my favorite stories from church history was of, of George Whitfield and the Wesley brothers, John and Charles Wesley. So those, of them, those three, along with Jonathan Edwards, were like the biggest voices of the Great Awakening in the 1700s that saw just thousands and thousands accept Christ. George Whitfield in the 1700s, used to gather with 30,000 people at a time would come to his revival messages. Right? This was amazing what was going on in the Great Awakening. Anyways, between them, they had massive disputes between Whitfield and the rest of the Wesleys. Because Whitfield at the time, or still probably, I guess not still alive, but he was, at the time he was a, a pretty firm Calvinist. And the Wesley brothers were really ardent, strong, firm Arminians. And if, if you don't know what that means, it's fine. It just means they had vastly different understandings of how salvation works and how grace works. And, and they, were, they were friends, but they had radically opposed ideas of theology. 
that, that were in a conflict at many times. And in fact, they got frustrated with each other. They both used to take out newspaper articles explaining why their theology was correct and why the other guys was wrong and post them in public newspapers because they disagreed so much. In fact, many people at the time thought they hated each other because their views were so different. But it wasn't that case. In fact, one point, a reporter asked George Whitfield, and they put it in a paper, he asked him, he says, do you think that Charles Wesley will be in heaven? Do you think he'll be in heaven? And here's Whitfield's response. I love it. He says, no, I don't. Scandal. He says, because Charles Wesley is going to be so close to the throne, and I'm going to be so far away, I'll probably never get a chance to see him. Do you get that? Even though he radically viewed God in different ways and had different understanding, he understood that the way that Charles Wesley lived his life and who he was, that he had such a beautiful relationship with the Lord, that he knew that Charles Wesley, he says, he follows God even better than I do. And I probably won't get to see him because he's going to be too close to Jesus, and I won't get to get that close. I love that. And in fact, when Whitfield was about to die, he asked that John Wesley would be the one that speaks at his funeral, and John Wesley agreed to do it, despite having radically different understandings. The more diverse the body the more God is glorified in the midst of their unity. And that's why Paul in his letters calls together the slaves and the prostitutes, the Jews and the Greeks, the men and the women, all of them, the zealots and the tax collectors, to come together to love Jesus and walk in unity. And so that means as Christians, we need to be in the midst of, of, of Democrats and Republicans and Libertarians and Independents. We need Arminians and Calvinists. We, we, we need Charismatics and the Frozen Chosen. We need mask wearers and, and mask avoiders. We need people who like pineapple on their pizza and those who think it's abomination, right? We need 49ers fans and even Rams fans. We, we even need probably people who like Tom Brady, right? We need all kinds to be able to come together to show that we can be unified together, right? Because Paul didn't let the slaves set up their own churches, he didn't let the Greeks go away from the Jews. He actually forced them together, even though it was the most painful thing imaginable for them, for the Jews and the Greeks to gather together. Jewish men literally would wake up every day, and their morning prayer was this, Lord God, thank you for making me a Jew and not a Gentile, a slave, or a dog. That was the morning prayer said by Jews each morning. Thank you for making me a Jewish man, not a Gentile, a slave, or a dog. And yet Jesus says those people, they cannot worship separately. They must worship together. And Paul thought everything he had to bring them together that they would worship together. So Jesus calls us into, so Jesus comes here to an extended time of prayer and this is what he prays for for us. You ever wonder if Jesus like showed up here today, what message he would give to the church? You don't need to wonder. It's already right here that we would love each other this way that we would have this kind of unity. We would love one another the way that he's loved us. And so this is Jesus' greatest prayer, is for unity for us today. So therefore, what do you think Satan's number one strategy is? You think it's, you know, raise up witches, convert people to Satanism? No, that's not a strategy. It's so division. That's Satan's strategy right now. It's to subtly work in tribalism and racism and us versus themism. It's, it's to help people feel justified that they're right and uh, that they are right and the others people are wrong. To feel justified in hunkering down and, and drawing walls between them and others and bunkering down into a place where, where they're separated from those they disagree with and they're living in echo chambers of their own world. They don't have to even be around the others in the world to put them in completely separate. So division and separate them. Now, what has the last couple of years been like? Literally, we've been following Satan's game plan to a T as a church nationwide. We've been inventing new ways of sowing division the last couple of years. I mean, who would have thought a couple of years ago you could have division over a little piece of cloth in the church? They would literally break churches apart in some places. 
The reality of the point of what we've seen the last couple of years, honestly, I'm just like, well played, Satan. Like, you played a really good game. You, 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 you caught us with our pants down. Like, we, we somehow did not see that one coming, and we played right into him, and he won that battle so easily, so swiftly. And he took so much of the church out this past time because we played right into his strength. But the stakes are too high. We cannot allow this to continue. We cannot allow ourselves to be in disunity with others, to not have reconciliation where there's conflict. We cannot allow for gossip and slander to ever be part of our language. We cannot allow ourselves to ever denigrate others who are part of the body of Christ. We need to make our primary call of obedience to Jesus' call to love one another the way that he loved us. We must walk in unity to the degree that Jesus loved us. He is our pitch pipe. He's our tuning fork that we need to line up to. So as we finish, what does that mean for us? Well, I've asked the question before, but I'm going to keep asking it. Is there anyone in my life right now that I'm in conflict with or where there's a tension in a relationship? Now, again, I'm not talking about abuse. If you're in an abusive situation, the job for you isn't reconciliation, it's getting help. But for those that are not in abusive situations, is there anyone where we are in anger, we're in conflict or dissension or disunity with? The answer is that's not an option for us as Christians. Christ has called us to reconcile. Even if that means walking three days and leaving our sacrifice at the altar, we are called to deal with it no matter how painful, how difficult. We don't have a choice as Christians to have anger and lack of reconciliation in our lives. It's not an option for us as Christians. The stakes are just too high. We should be known first and foremost as Christians for the way in which we love one another. That is our testimony to the world. And any disunity destroys that witness according to Christ. And the second question as we finish, how well are we loving those we don't know in this community? As Jesus is praying, he's specifically praying to love one another, and that's specifically those in the church. How well are we loving one another here in this community, specifically those we don't know? Because Christ has called us first and foremost that we must love one another in the body. Do we take time to ask the Lord to use us in loving one another in this room and those that we know that know Christ? Are we actually representing the life of Christ to one another in the way we care about one another? The people literally in this room or online, the people that are Christians around your life, are we actually loving people in that way? And specifically, the people in this room, are we making an effort to truly get to know those, especially those who are single or those who come alone or those who who don't have a lot of extended family? Are we reaching out to the people we don't know and those who are coming who don't have those connection points? That must be a priority as us as Christians because the reality is all of us are on the Northview Welcoming Committee. Whether you're part of the fit team or not and volunteer for that, all of us are part of representing the life of Christ in the way that he sacrificially loves us to everyone that walks in this door. That should be all of our top priorities we come here as Jesus. Show me how can I love the way that you have called me to love. Amen? All right, let's pray as we finish. Jesus, I just say thank you. That your love for us is demonstrated on the cross. So we're in this final holy week, Jesus, that... You gave your life for us, Lord, and now you call us to lay down our lives for one another. And as your final word to us, your prayer for us today, this is what most is upon your heart, that we take your love and we pour it into one another. And that that is how you will reach the lost, the primary way, Lord. So Jesus, I just pray, may you work in our lives to receive your love. And Jesus, may you show us what it looks like for us to then go out into the world and love others the way that you have called us to love. Oh, Jesus, thank you for your love for us. Help us to love the world like you do, Jesus. Amen.